Father, we thank you that when we face trials and struggles and sorrow in this world, that you give us the opportunity to lament. You walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. You promise that you will never leave us and never forsake us. And Lord, we thank you that even when our soul is downcast, it is not abandoned. We thank you, Lord, that you are there with us. And therefore, when we walk through that valley of the shadow of death, we can still say, it is well with my soul. Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes it is hard to say that. Sometimes it's hard to believe that because of the losses that we face. But I pray that even today as we open the scripture, that you will remind us that you are always still here with us. Yet at the same time, we ought to be real about the challenges that we face and the sorrows that we experience. So, Lord, please teach us now in this time as we open the scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the song that we just sang, it's called It Is Well With My Soul. And it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. Back in the late 1800s, Horatio Spafford was a successful attorney in Chicago, but he faced some challenges. In 1871, Horatio and Ann Spafford's son died. And then while they were grieving, just a few months later was the great Chicago fire in which they lost practically every earthly possession. Now fast forward just a couple of years further. They were going to go over to Europe, specifically to England. Horatio got delayed, so he sent the rest of his family ahead. He was going to join them soon. Except that that ship on the way to England sunk. And when his wife arrived in England, she sent him a telegram that said, Saved alone. Saved alone. Their four daughters had perished when that ship sunk. So Horatio, as you can imagine, he jumps on a ship as quickly as possible to go over there and join his grieving wife over in England. And as he is on that ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean, he writes the song, It is well with my soul. You know, sometimes life stinks. We live in a broken world that leaves us reeling at times, leaves us with trials and temptations and sorrows and just wondering what is going to happen next. Sometimes in the midst of a broken world, life stinks. I mean, for Horatio and Ann Spafford, they experienced that on a deep and personal level. But sometimes we face challenges. Sometimes we face sorrow and loss on a broader scale as well. I think of this last Wednesday when we remember the anniversary of 9-11, where 2,977 men and women on September 11th of 2001 died in terrorist attacks. And since then, there have been so many, such a high percentage of the first responders who were there at Ground Zero on 9-11 who have died or gotten sick from illnesses related to being there on that first September 11th in 2001. Sometimes life in this broken world just stinks. And we are in a series right now that's called Sacred Sorrow. That's intended to help us know how do we process, how do we handle the sorrows that we face in life. And on top of that, how do we interpret them in light of knowing that God is still there. God is still good. God is still faithful. And so with that in mind, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 1. 
Lamentations chapter 1. If you're looking for Lamentations in your Bible, it's just a little bit over halfway through, just after a long book called Jeremiah. And if you're following along in ESV Student Study Bible, it's on page 1023. Now last week I provided some background on the book of Lamentations. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, who was a prophet and a priest, to Judah. Judah was the southern portion of the nation of Israel, and the capital city of Jerusalem also was in Judah. Now we also saw last week that in 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem. God had sent plenty of warnings. He sent prophets like Jeremiah to warn, uh, warn Judah and warn Israel over and over and over to repent, to return to him. But they refused. And so the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem. And Lamentations is Jeremiah's grief-filled memorial over Jerusalem. Now Lamentations is more than just an expression of sorrow and grief. It is that, but it's more. It's a memorial to help generations to come remember that dark day when Jerusalem was destroyed. It's kind of like the 9-11 memorial in New York City. It's there to call us to remember. You, you may have heard the phrase, I imagine you probably have, we will never forget, tied with 9-11. That is the same thing Jeremiah is trying to do for us. He's trying to call us, never forget that dark day when Jerusalem was destroyed. So, so the book of Lamentations is essentially a memorial over Jerusalem. <clears throat> and I said last week that the book of Lamentations is heart-wrenching, it is sorrowful, it's full of grief, it's tragic, yet at the same time, it is beautiful in its own way. And part of the beauty of Lamentations is in the structure of Lamentations. Let me explain what I mean here. Look with me if you have your Bibles open to chapter 1. How many verses are in Lamentations chapter 1? If you, if you see, say it out loud. 22 verses in Lamentations chapter 1. How many verses are in Lamentations chapter 2? 22. How many verses are in Lamentations chapter 3? Don't immediately jump to 22. 66. 66 is 22 times 3. Look at, if you, look at not Ephesians. Look at Lamentations chapter 4. How many verses are in chapter 4? 22. See a trend here? Any guess how many verses are in Lamentations chapter 5? 22. You may be wondering, what is the significance of the number 22? Well, back in the Hebrew alphabet, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so part of the beauty of Lamentations is found in the fact that the chapters in Lamentations are based on the Hebrew alphabet. Chapters 1 and 2 each verse starts with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. For instance, if you look to look at chapter 1, the original Hebrew, you would see it starts with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 2 begins with the letter Bet, which is the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and on and on and on. That's how the first two chapters of Lamentations are structured. Now you come to Lamentations chapter 3 that has, uh, it has 66 verses. 66 is 22 times 3. It still follows the progression of the Hebrew alphabet, but this time it does it in triads. So it's kind of like AAA, BBB, CCC, or literally Aleph, 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 Bait, 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 Gimel, 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 Dalet, Dalet, Dalet. And it goes all the way through 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet times 3 in these triads is 66. 
Come to Lamentations chapter 4. It returns to the same basic structure as chapters 1 and 2 of each verse, starting with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You come to chapter 5, you might expect the same thing. It's 22 verses. But chapter 5, actually, it abandons the alphabetic acrostic. The, the verses don't start with specific letters that follow any sort of pattern in chapter 5, but it still is honoring the Hebrew alphabet because it still has 22 stanzas that are divided in our Bibles into 22 verses. So we see there is a poetic beauty in how Jeremiah recorded Lamentations. Now we have to ask the question, why did he do this? I mean, it's intentional, obviously. You don't just get that alphabetization on accident. So why did he do it? Well, I think one reason why Jeremiah did this was that the alphabetic technique emphasizes the totality of Jerusalem's destruction. He's trying to show us the suffering that took place there from A to Z. He's saying this is how complete, this is how comprehensive the destruction was. And on top of this, this poetic structure, it creates a memorial that will be used for generations to come. Because Jeremiah knew how worship of God in Israel went. There was a lot of liturgy, a lot of recounting of what happened in Israel's past, a lot of reading of scripture as they were worshiping God. And in fact, Lamentations is still used to this day in Jewish synagogues. There's one particular day every year where they read the book of Lamentations to remember that dark day when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so there, is, there is this fascinating beauty here that is not as apparent in our English Bibles, but keep in mind it is always beneath what we are reading here. A beauty amidst sorrow. Now today we're only going to focus on the first four verses of Lamentations chapter 1, but I think that if we understand these first four verses, we will understand everything that's taking place in the rest of the chapter. So I invite you to follow along as I read Lamentations 1, verses 1 through 4. Jeremiah writes, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. So Lamentations begins with the word, how. It says in verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How, like a widow, she has become. Similarly, over chapter 2, it says, verse 1 says, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts with the same word. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. Now actually, back um, in the Hebrew Bible, how is actually the name of this book. The name of the book in the Hebrew Bible, we call Lamentations, is how. 
And I think it's very appropriate because when someone faces something that's tragic, something that's shocking, something that just disorients them and leaves them confused, a logical question, it's actually not just a logical question, it's just an emotional question that just pops out is, how, why, how is essentially uh, reflecting the struggle of lament. It reflects the struggle of lament that when someone is facing a challenge in their life, they're tempted to ask, how could this happen? How, how, how can God allow this? How can I go on? How can I have any hope when I look into the future? How? It reflects the struggle of lament. Now, frequently when people ask how or people ask why in the midst of struggles, they aren't looking for a logical answer. Instead, it's an emotional question that's just expressing their angst, their grief, their fear, their sorrow, their uncertainty. How is how the book of Lamentations begins. Now, in these first four verses, Jeremiah offers us snapshots of Jerusalem's lonely loss. First of all, the first snapshot is of a grieving, childless widow. Look with me to verse 1. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations. Now at one point, Jerusalem was a great city, a beautiful city, a prosperous city, a city that was majestic, a city that was loved. But now, after the destruction at the hands of Babylon, she is alone. Like a widow who has no husband to protect her or care for her to bring her joy she is abandoned. She is lonely. And even worse, she is childless. It says here that at one point, she was full of people. These people were metaphorically her children, but now it is empty. Her children, the people, are gone. And she is left to weep in lonely bitterness. She was a successful mother. Now she is grieving alone. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. The last part of this verse points to the second snapshot here of an enslaved princess. Now, Jerusalem was a beautiful city. Built upon a hill, the highest point of the city at the top of that hill was the temple. A beautiful city, a prosperous city. In generations before this was written, King Solomon was there. I mean, he prospered the city like no other king. Royalty from throughout the entire area, they, they, they streamed into Jerusalem, bringing treasure and bringing homage to the city and to the people and to the God who was there. But now things have changed. There's been a tragic reversal. She was glorious. Now she's been reduced to ashes and dust. Something has been lost. And, and this reversal of circumstances is so frequently the cause of mourning and grieving in our lives as well. That we face a difficult circumstance, sometimes large, sometimes you know, relatively trivial, but even so, something is lost. I mean, let's think about a few examples. Think about someone who in the past was healthy. Their body was doing well. They were, they were vibrant in, in their physical uh, abilities and such. But then they get sick. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's dementia. Maybe it's something else that comes along. And when health is taken away, that health 
is lost. A part of them is lost. Their ability to look to the future with hope, it may be lost. Their sense of normalcy in life is lost. Or think about when a loved one dies. I mean, we oftentimes use the terminology of they lost a loved one. Now, when a loved one dies, previously they were alive, but now they are gone. What is lost is the companionship. What is lost is them being a part of our lives. Sometimes it feels like a part of ourself dies when a loved one dies. Something is lost. Or just think about it. You're just cruising through life. Things are going well. You're, you're happy. You're comfortable. But then some negative circumstance comes along that shakes your world a little bit. What you lose then is a sense of comfort, a sense of peace, maybe a sense of hope. You may lose a carefree and joy-filled spirit. Because that's what happens when we face trials in our lives. Something is lost. And that, that loss creates, creates a sense of grieving, a sense of mourning. And that is what Jerusalem personified is experiencing here in this passage. Something is lost. So Jerusalem is, is pictured here as a grieving childless widow, an enslaved princess. And when something is lost, especially when it's significant magnitude, it leads to some form of bitter weeping, which is what we see here in this passage. Look with me to verse 2. It says again, personifying Jerusalem, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. So again, Jerusalem's personified. It's zooming in on her face. You can see tears coming down her cheeks. And it says that she weeps bitterly in the night. You know, night, when people are struggling, when people are grieving, when people are worried, it's usually nighttime that is the deepest and the hardest. She should be sleeping at night. But instead, she is awake, grieving, but grieving alone. Because at night, I mean, we experience the same thing. That when, when it's night and we're weighed down with sorrow or weighed down with anxiety, it's night when we're frequently processing that, when we want to be sleeping, but it keeps turning over and over in our mind. And it's night when we feel the most isolated. It's at night when, when our minds go to the deepest and darkest and most difficult places. And Jeremiah personifying Jerusalem is saying that is what is happening for her as well. And on top of that, she has no comforters. It says in verse 2, Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Now in the ancient world, when someone was grieving, it was customary that friends and relatives would come be with that person through a time just to offer them support and comfort through that time of loss. It's much the same as it is today. As Jeremiah is personifying Jerusalem in this loss after Jerusalem was destroyed, he's saying that no one is coming to comfort her. Now again, this is a personification, but there, there is historical precedent behind this. Let me give some historical context. Jerusalem and, and the larger region of Judah, they had created treaties and alliances with surrounding nations, surrounding cities, that if someone comes and attacks them, the others are going to come to help. But in the face of the fierce Babylonian Empire, all those other nations, all those other cities that pledged their allegiance, they ran and hid. <coughs> Jerusalem faced the Babylonian Empire alone. And so that's what it means when it says that all her lovers, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. 
You know, it's hard to go through challenges in life. We feel so oftentimes isolated. And that's sometimes made worse by the fact that people, sometimes they pull back. Sometimes when we're going through hardships in life, especially deep hardships, people sometimes don't know what to do or what to say, so they do nothing. And that just increases our sense of isolation. And some people, well-meaning, they come and they want to offer comfort, but the things they say should probably never have been said in the first place. And they end up just leaving us just more upset or, or just feeling more lonely that even though they may be physically present, they are saying things that show they don't understand and they aren't trying to understand. They're just giving us platitudes or they're just sharing their own grief, thinking, well, that'll help us when in fact they aren't paying attention to the grief we're experiencing. But even in those times where we do have people to walk with us through the challenges that we're facing in life, through the sorrow, through the grief, there is still a sense of loss that no human comforter can fully fulfill. And that's because we have a loss. Whether it's the loss of loved one, the loss of health, the loss of our future, the loss of money, the loss of a big game in sports. I mean, the list could go on and on. That no amount of comfort is going to fully take the place of that loss because we've lost something that probably is not able to be returned. Maybe it's just lost time that we just wasted time in our lives because of just messing around or going in a bad direction. That time is lost and we grieve that. And so we have those times where we weep bitterly. The best type of comfort we can experience, humanly speaking, is when someone comes alongside of us when we're struggling and is just there, is faithful to us, maybe asks some questions and just listens. That is the best type of comfort. But even so, there is a loss that is painful. Now finally, in this passage, the final snapshot is one of purposelessness. Look with me to verse 4. It says, The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her aversions have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Now Jerusalem was not merely a city. Jerusalem was a center of worshiping God. Now, I think as Christians, we sometimes struggle to understand the importance of the temple and, Jer and, and Jerusalem as a whole in Jewish worship. Because Jesus opened the door for us to worship God anywhere and everywhere. He says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he said that in John chapter 4 in the context of saying it's not about a specific place. It's about where your heart is and engaging with God in spirit and in truth. But for Jews... Their worship of God centered around the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and around the rituals taking place in that temple. And so when that temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed, they were just left wandering, wondering, where is God? Feeling disconnected from even the ability to worship God. And so Jerusalem was central to Jewish worship. And it says in verse 4, the rose to Zion mourn. This word Zion, when you experience it in Scripture, it's in the Old Testament a lot. It's referring to Jerusalem. It's, another, it's kind of like a nickname for Jerusalem. But it refers to Jerusalem as a center of worship. It's the dwelling place of God on earth. But it says the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. You know, Jerusalem was so central to Jewish worship that three times a year, Jews from throughout Israel would flock to Jerusalem for usually week-long festivals. And as they approached Jerusalem on the roads, they would be singing. In fact, we have a number of psalms written in the book of Psalms. 
there are songs that would be sung by these pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem. For instance, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are called Psalms of Ascent. You will see that title actually in your Bible if you look at them. They are Psalms of Ascent that as they are ascending the road to Jerusalem, they would be singing these songs of worship and joy. But now, with Jerusalem destroyed, with the temple destroyed, the roads are quiet. The gates, he says, are desolate. It says that the priests groan. Why do the priests groan? Because they no longer have anything to do there. It says that the virgins were uh, afflicted. Now you may be wondering, what in the world is that talking about? Well, young women you know, in these festivals would sing. But now the songs that previously were full of joy, if they're singing at all, are full of grief. And so what we see here is a snapshot of lonely loss. That when we face significant loss in our lives, there is a lonesomeness. That even when we have comforters around us, and hopefully we do have comforters around us, that there's still that sense of loss. There's still a place for weeping, and even bitter weeping. And what this does here is help validate our grief when we face loss. The application point for today is that when life stinks, lament. It's a simple application point. When life stinks, lament. As we talked about last week, the beautiful thing about lamenting is it allows us to be real about what's going on, real about our emotions, yet at the same time remain engaged with God. Because as we lament, we are talking with God, we're telling God, God, this stinks, God, I don't like this. But we're remaining engaged with God. And the biblical uh, paradigm that we see is that when people lament to God in this fashion, they come through on the other side trusting God. God. It may be tough to trust God for a while, but lamenting allows us to deal authentically with our emotions and trust God in the process, or at least come out on the other side with trust. You know, sometimes in this broken world, life stinks. I mean, it certainly did for Jeremiah at that time, and all of us experience this at varying times in varying ways. But when life stinks, God gives us the privilege of lamenting and even though here in the Lamentations so far, it seems like God is distant. You wonder, well, God, where are you? We'll get to that next week. Where is God in the midst of suffering and trials? But we know that God is always still there. He is faithful, even though our trials are real and our trials are challenging. But when we face trials, let us not get lost in a sense just of despondency or of apathy or of just godless frustration where we turn away from him, but instead let us lament to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you give us this opportunity to lament. Thank you that you, you welcome us to do that, that you don't shun us, you don't push us away when we are struggling, but you call us to cast all of our anxieties on you because you care for us. So Lord, help us to do that. We know that you want to welcome us with open arms even when we're struggling. But Lord, sometimes we struggle to be real with you. So help us, Lord, to lament well. We pray these things in Jesus' name.